you actually have to read the psalm with a passage in the Old Testament uh, that talks about David's tremendous moral failure. Psalm 51 is about when he utterly failed God and his people as king and as God's chosen servant. And what's incredible is that in scripture, it still speaks of David, a murderer and an adulterer, as a man after God's own heart. And that's just, that's just beyond our understanding. And some of us may be repulsed by that idea. Others may be broken and humbled by that idea. Either case, let's take a look at what God's word says today um, in Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is God's word. Uh, before I go into the sermon, I want to make a correction to something I said last week. Um, I said, in the course of that sermon, I said there's a passage in scripture in Luke where a child asks his father, can I have some water? And Jesus, he says that, you know, if a child were to ask you for some water, would you give him a certain a serpent? I misquoted, just for the record, okay? Yes, I am fallen. My memory is fallen. Um, what, I, what I actually should have said is it's found in Luke chapter 11, verse 11, and it word for word says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? So that's the actual text. And I misquoted it, I know, right? S-M-H, right? Did I get that right? Yes. I got a popular culture reference I actually nailed, right? That was on point, right? That's another popular culture reference, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That was also, what, what's another, anyways, I'm not going to get distracted. But um, uh, yeah, essentially, I was, my point was this. It, it doesn't change because I miss said fish, right? Instead of saying fish, I said water. The point doesn't change, but still, we should be faithful to the scriptures, and that just shows that I am on the same journey with you um, in growing in the grace of God to become more like Christ, right? Uh, so um, that's for your information. But looking at the sermon, <clears throat> originally this sermon is a three-point sermon based on the entire psalm. I only read the three, first three verses because as I was preparing for this psalm, uh, for this sermon, and I was working on the first point, I made three more points under that first point. And then by the time I made the third point, I realized if I try to do the second and third point, I'm going to have nine points. And it's going to be a nine-point sermon. And so I decided to spare you from suffering and grief. And I just cut it off at the first point. And we're going to just focus on the first point today. But before I do that, I just want to lay out for you what Psalm 51 looks like in three major themes. 
David, after he went into Bathsheba, if you don't know what that means, that's biblical phraseology and um, an idiomatic expression, if you will, of, of basically describing that David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. If that's still archaic for you, then just look it up on Google. I'm not going to say any more on that. But that's what's happening here. And Nathan the prophet, well, before Nathan the prophet confronts David about his sin, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But in order to cover it up, because Bathsheba was married, he orchestrated politically to kill off her Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, so that it looked like it was totally natural. Yeah, conspiracy theory, people, this is your text, right? It looked like it was perfectly natural, but it wasn't. David orchestrated it behind the scenes in his palace while there was a, a war going on, and Uriah died in that war. And David, after he heard news that Uriah died, he called for Bathsheba to become his wife. That's what happened. And of course, this doesn't fly with God. God is not cool with this. Right? I'm mildly staying, saying this, almost bordering on irreverence when I describe it this way. But I don't want to dwell too much on that. I want to get into the, verse, the first three verses here. But I wanted to give you the cultural, uh, historical backdrop of this psalm. When we look at a man like that, we think that he should never be forgiven. He doesn't deserve mercy. We're not just talking about the sermon title today is when you don't act saved. That's everybody. That's me. There are times I don't act like a pastor. And let's just go down the logical framework. Not even a minister. There are times I don't act like a, like a, like a leader in the church. I don't act like a member of the church. I don't act like a Christian. I don't even act like I know God at all. There are times. And that's, that is a mild situation. This, it doesn't even come close to what David actually did. David didn't just not act saved, okay? He acted like, like if he hates God, if he doesn't care about God, and he doesn't care about anybody but himself. He's not just, I don't really believe in Christianity. He's, he would be a tyrant, a dictator. He, he acted like if he was in charge of an oppressive regime, right? We're talking about major crimes against humanity here, right? Um, this is what he did. And yet, when we look in the Bible, David was forgiven. There were consequences for his actions, for his sins. But he was forgiven, and not only was he forgiven, the Bible says that even after that, that David is a man after God's own heart. That is incredible. <clears throat> now, why? Why is David described to be this kind of man? You see, what, this is a promise for every one of us here. It means no matter how badly you have fallen, no matter how far you have stumbled, there is hope in Christ. There is redemption and there is a better day for you. 
That's the promise, is that even the sins that a community like us would typically be ashamed of even mentioning or thinking about, right? Those sins are forgiven in Christ. That's an incredible promise. Um, I want to give you three things today that was present in this psalm in David's life that defined him as a man after God's own heart, even after he sinned the way that he sinned. Number one, he requested mercy. And what this means is it's not, God, could you just take it easy on me? It's not that. If you look in verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, and blot out my transgressions. Blot it out, right? This is a man who realizes that there is no other way of morally fixing himself. He can't just, if he failed with someone, okay, he can't just make it better by, by being better to someone else. He knows he can't fix it by trying to bring up how good a person and how an amazing a person he was when he was younger and how he defeated Goliath. When every soldier in the, Israel, in the army of Israel was trembling and peeing in their pants, sorry to be vulgar, but when they were too scared to face this Philistine enemy and this young shepherd boy came up and without a sword, without a spear, without armor and without a shield, went against this nine-foot-tall giant and defeated him with just a few rocks and a sling and an incredible faith in God, right? He could be going back. After he sinned, if there was anybody who could dare to accuse him of being a bad person or being unworthy or, you know, you don't have that in a monarchy, but to impeach him, right? Okay, you can say that this guy doesn't deserve to be king of Israel, king of the nation of God's people, right? Of the nation of God, excuse me. But he could have just went and thought mentally and emotionally, he could have thought, you don't even know who I am. You don't even know what I did. You don't even know my history. Do you, were you there when I defeated Goliath? Were you there when God himself chose me over King Saul. Were you there? You know, he could default to those things, but he refused to. That's part of why the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart, despite his incredible moral failures. He, when he says, have mercy on me, O God, right? He didn't add a bunch of stuff to that statement, saying, have mercy on me because I was such a great person in the past. Have mercy on me because of my moral track record. 80% of the time, I'm a good person, but 20% I failed. Have mercy on me, oh God, because look at all these other people. They're worse than me. They didn't even come close to doing the moral things that I've done. Have mercy on me, oh God, because of all A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? He didn't say that. He just said, have mercy on me, oh God. And the person that I think about in the New Testament, when I see those words in Psalm 51, verse 1, is that tax collector. That tax collector at the back in the corner, when the Pharisee was up front, 
And he was praying to God, telling God how righteous he was and how much he tithed and how faithful and obedient he was to God. That tax collector that was just beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what I, that's what I think of when I hear David's words in have mercy on me, O God. That's really hard to do, Right? It's only by the grace of God that someone who was proud enough, thinking that he was untouchable, thinking that he was above the law, thinking that no one could say what's right and what's wrong to him about committing adultery, covering it up, and committing murder. Someone who fell into such, in su uh, fell into such arrogance and contempt for others, contempt for God, and a hyper-exaltation of himself. Someone like that can come to the point and say, Lord, I've come to a point where I can't say anything to justify myself. And the only hope I have is for you to have mercy on me. It's an incredible trust. It's an incredible reliance. It's an incredible self-abandonment and just completely depending on the person before you that you're asking mercy from. That person, you, you basically give them the power and the authority to hurt you, to do violence to your uh, vulnerability and authenticity, to accuse you further and more intensely. You have given them, them the power to further accuse you, and you are okay with that. This man, who was so arrogant, came to a point where he finally was okay with God dispensing wrath if he had to. Because he knew that's all that he deserved. Right? That's an incredible place to be. And it's a difficult place to be, even personally. Right? That's what it means to request for mercy. It's not just, can you just give me a break? It's, not, it's a totally different attitude. Can you just go easy on me, right? It's not just asking for an extension on a paper, on a research paper. It's not just asking an extension on a work-related project that you couldn't get done on time. This is, this is in, the, in the context of work, it would be pretty much, I have failed to meet the project deadline. You are free to do with me whatever you, you feel necessary. If you need to fire me, then fire me. That's the position that he's in. That's, that's where his heart has come. He's completely, that's what I mean by complete abandonment to the mercy of God. Right? That's what it means. And the manner in which God shows mercy, David illustrates in verses 1 through 2, says, according, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love is covenantal love. That's loyal love. So he's saying, have mercy on me, O God, Depend, uh, that's ground, that mercy that is grounded in your relationship with me, your covenant with me, your promise to me, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, now, this is a really interesting word because what it means is compassionate feeling. You know what's really interesting? Steadfast love, covenantal, loyal love, 
That's a legal ob obligation or a verbal obligation. It's an, it's, when you make a covenant with, with someone, it's like a contract. It's a, it's a relational contract. It's a legal obligation. When you say abundant mercy in verse 1, it's a compassionate feeling. You can contractually, legally, be obligated to have mercy on someone who has failed you. But you may not be obligated to feel anything for them and for their situation. David is saying, have mercy on me, O God, not because you're only obligating yourself to me, but have mercy on me and feel what I feel. Now, here's the thing. You know how audacious this is? This is so audacious because David has offended God. And when you're offended and when you're hurt deeply by someone, you refuse to empathize with their struggles. You refuse to because you feel they don't deserve it. And if they have justly hurt you, you'd be right. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve any compassion and any mercy from you if they have unjustly wronged you. And David is asking that God not only have mercy on him because God has covenantally obligated himself in relationship and commitment to him, but David is saying, feel for me, God. Please feel for me. And in that sense, you see, David, the reason why he's a man after God's own heart, he's not just trying to get out of a situation he got caught in. He's not just saying, I have broken the legal commitment and the agreement that we had. Can you just do this for me so that I'm not a lawbreaker anymore? That I'm not accused of this? I'm not guilty, legally guilty anymore? You see, someone who's just trying to get out of legal punishment but has no real heart change and has no guilt and sorrow for the offense itself, regardless of any legal ramification, is someone whose heart is in tune with the person that he has offended. But someone who looks just for legal freedom without caring about how that person feels whom he has offended is someone who's truly not repentant. And that's why David, because he not only cares about the legal brokenness, the covenantal brokenness between him and God, but he also cares about the heart of God and his relationship with God within those legal boundaries. And he's saying, God, I want you to feel me, feel for me again. And when you've offended someone in a relationship, you want them to love you again. You want them to accept you again. And that is what David is asking for. But he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it, and he knows that. And he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Back then, they didn't have washers <laughs> that you just throw in, put in your tide, and then it cycles through. What they did, some of you may have seen it, with your parents maybe, or your grandparents, they take the clothing that is dirty, and they bring it to the river, and then they beat it in the water, right? They step on it. They beat it against the rock. That's what this means when it says, wash me thoroughly. It says, beat me down. Knead me, tread me, humiliate me. Cause me suffering. 
just make this relationship right. And the thing is, in Christ, this is the great mercy of God and his great love for us, his covenantal commitment to us. He chose, even though it's David who deserves to be beaten down, and even though it's David who deserves to be humiliated and to be stepped on, to be cleansed, God refuses to do that to the guilty. And instead, he chooses to take his innocent son and beat him down and to humiliate him and to trample on him and to make him suffer in the, in the eyes of all creation so that we who are guilty can be made innocent. And that's the beauty of God's mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Could David ever be washed thoroughly? He's saying, do whatever you need to do, God, to me. Just beat me down. Do whatever you need to do. Step on me so that I could just be accepted in your sight again. I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever you dish out. And in Christ, when God sent his son, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, what God is saying is, you deserve that, but I refuse to treat you that way. And he says, and cleanse me from my sin. And that means to make or declare morally clean. And this is talking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He's saying, beat me down, God. Punish me to make me whole again. But also just make it publicly official. Make it official. And just say, that I have been clean. I was once filthy because of my sin, but now you are clean. And of course, that goes back to Christ suffering and dying for our sin, and God, after seeing Christ's obedience and his suffering and his death and his resurrection, saying to us, my son has paid the price of your sin. I declare you righteous. I take his righteousness and I impute it to you. Right? It's a legal declaration. Right? Now, David is asking for this kind of mercy. And he gives a reason for it. The reason for the mercy that he asked for is verse 3. You have to keep in mind to appreciate everything that he's saying you have to keep in mind what he did. And if you need to go back to the story where David sinned against God, then you should go back to that story and read it. But here is the reason for mercy, verse 3. For I know my transgressions, that's the first reason he gives, and the second, my sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And this is the heart that God wants from all of us. And this is the heart that the Bible points to as the heart that is after his own heart. This is why God, the, well, this is why scripture has said of David that he is a man after my own heart. It's because of these two reasons. Number one, for I know my transgressions. What that means is he admits to his sin, he owns up to it, and he's aware of it. He refuses to, to distract himself from his wrongdoing. He refuses to default 
to the easy excuse that my sins aren't really that bad. Right? Isn't that weird? Right? We try to, you know, it's, it's not weird. It's pretty natural. We're human, right? When we see sins in other people, we, we pick it out and we feel that it's really wrong. But then when we see our sins, right, they don't, they, we're very lenient to ourselves. We're willing to excuse ourselves, right? What David says is, have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgressions. He says, I admit to my sin, and I'm aware that it is sin. I'm calling it sin. I'm part of the problem. I am the problem, right? You, you can leave a certain situation, and there can be a convoluted mixture, multi-layered problem there, right? Maybe an unhealthy culture at work, whatever it is. You can leave that situation, and you can say, well, it's because of this, this. But how many of us can actually confidently say, I never made a mistake in that situation? Maybe there are some situations where, yes, you are the victim, and injustice have, has been done to you, right? But in a typical interpersonal situation, usually there's fault on both sides, right? David refuses to justify his sin because of someone else's sin or because of some other circumstance. He refuses to do that. Not only that, but he says, my sin is ever before me. And this is a willingness to stand accused. This is the hard part. That phrase, before me, if you look in the Bible, it's talking about presence. And when you're talking about guilt or sin, you typically don't want to bring it into your mind. You don't want to remind people of your sins. You don't want to be reminded of your own sins. You don't want it there in your mind, in your space, in your mental space, in your emotional space. You try not to think, think about it. You move on. For David, this is the heart of a man who loves the Lord. He says, every waking moment of my life, there is not a moment, a day that goes by when I don't think of how I am guilty of breaking my covenant with you, God. There is not a moment. He's willing to stand accused. That phrase before me appears many times in Scripture. I'm going to give you one iconic example found in Exodus 20. It's part of the Ten Commandments, and it's when God says, you shall have no other gods, what? Before and he's saying, do not bring these idols into my presence. Do not. God sees everything. He's saying, I see you. I see your life. I see every moment of your life. You shall have no other gods before my omniscient presence, before me. So when David uses this phrase, before me, he's talking about how he is okay to stand accused having his sin his adultery with Bathsheba, his deception to cover it up, and his hostile intent against Uriah and his murder of him. How he's willing to stand accused and to say, I am guilty and I have nothing else to say. 
I have no justification, no excuse, no qualification whatsoever. And in that position, David doesn't verbally say it, but he says it non-verbally, and it's implied. By taking the position where I stand accused and I have nothing else I can say for myself, he's basically saying, but God, if only you would shield me, protect me, and deliver me from the wrath that I should, that I deserve. That's what he's saying. And you see, this is actually a great, I'm not going to say it's a secret, but it's, it's a great, uh, it's a key element to conflict resolution between people. If you don't want to escalate the situation further and make everyone in the room mad, okay, take the position that David took where he just abandons himself at the mercy of the people around him. And he says, I own up to my sin. Yeah, there's a lot you can say about the other person. There's a lot you can bring up. But you refuse to because the issue is not to justify yourself. The issue is, to, is for God to justify you. And in that, I'm telling you, there is a work salvation approach to conflict resolution, and there is a redemptive, grace-centered approach to conflict resolution. A work salvation approach to conflict resolution is one where you will justify yourself in the eyes of those who are involved in the conflict. You will justify yourself and say, I am right. I made mistakes, but I am right. That is a work salvation approach. A grace-based approach is one where you say, I am not right. I have sinned. And you refuse to be the accuser because you know there is already an eternal accuser roaming around in this world who is doing a fine job of accusing everybody in the room. And you refuse to take that position where you use the lips and the tongue that God has given you for praise and for encouragement and for his glory and use it to imitate the accuser in accusing others. Now, the key, the key is both parties need to defer to the truth of God's word to mediate the conflict. And that is what David is doing here. He's saying, I stand accused. I refuse to justify myself before you, God. I refuse to bring up everything I did right. And I refuse to bring up all the times, God, where you seem to not care and not listen and be absent in my life when I needed you the most. I refuse to bring that up, God. And I refuse to bring up all the good things I've done. But God, when it comes to this situation with Bathsheba and Uriah, I stand accused. There is nothing I can say for myself. You are right, and you are justified. Your words are true. And this is where David is non-verbally saying, by saying, I am accused, I am guilty. Verbally, he says that. Non-verbally, he says, God, have mercy on me. I seen. Of course, he says it verbally in verse 1, but I'm just saying when he says, my sin is ever before me, he's saying, 
it's implied, God have mercy on me. And you see what David is asking for, he's asking for a mediator because he refuses to pretend like he can be the mediator. And you see, that is the problem of work salvation approach to conflict resolution, is that we try to be Jesus Christ. We try to be God. We try not only to be right, but we also try to intercede for ourselves so that we are made, we are seen as right before the other. And that is not grace-defined and driven, that is works-driven. And here in Romans 7, I'm going to close with this, Paul basically does the same thing, but he says it directly. He says in Romans 7, verse 22 through 25, For I delight in the law of God. He's saying the law of God is the truth in my inner being. I delight in it. I have embraced the law of God as my moral standard, but I see in my members, in my life, my body, my mind, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, when you try to justify yourself in conflict resolution, you have become your own deliverer. But Paul and David refuse to take that work salvation approach where he says, where both people say, I am fully morally capable, I am righteous enough to deliver myself out of this conflict, and you have no right to accuse me. They refuse to take that approach. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Definitely not Paul. And he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he says, the only one who can deliver me from this conflict that I have in Romans 7 is Jesus Christ himself. Let me just tell you one very, at least it's interesting to me, one very interesting thing about David's phrase in verse 3 in Psalm 51, my sin is ever before me. That word for sin at different and multiple times in the Old Testament is used. It's used in Exodus, many times in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Second Chronicles, Ezra, many of the minor prophets. That word for sin is not only used for sin, it has an alternate usage. And that alternate usage is sin offering. And if you know your Levitical law, your Old Testament law, a sin offering was an animal that you killed and shed its blood so that it may, so that God may have mercy on you for atoning for your sins. And so that word, when David says, my sin is ever before me, he's saying, also, the only way, that, along with Paul, the only way that this wretched soul, this sinful soul, can ever be delivered from this conflict and be justified in the sight of God and before men is if there is a sin offering in my place. Instead of seeing the sin that is ever before me, I want to be in a place where I can fix my eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews 12 says. Looking to Jesus, the author 
or founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus, not my own, not myself, to be my own deliverer, but Jesus Christ. And in that, that is why David, with all of his terrible sin in committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah and deceiving the kingdom of God and doing that also, ironically, publicly before the kingdom of God. When Nathan confronted him, this is his response. My sin is ever before me. I need a deliverer, and I cannot deliver myself. I'm telling you, there, this, is, this is, as an application of this text, if you, have conflict res- if you have conflict and you're trying to pursue conflict resolution, this is the approach that I'm convinced that a believing people of God must take every time. When we come together to resolve a conflict and we communicate, you must never bring up how you are right and that person is wrong. If you really want resolution and reconciliation, you have to bring up your sin, what you've done wrong, and refuse the temptation to become your own deliverer and justify yourself, take a work salvation approach to conflict resolution, and instead take a grace-driven approach and rely on the mediating work of Jesus Christ to bring harmony and unity to you and the other party. One practical application, and then I'm done. I promise. Conflict resolution, you and someone else, you guys have a problem, come together, have a third party. Very important who you choose. That person (coughs) must not be a random person who doesn't know any of you. That person must really know you. That person must really know you. Because if what happens in conflict resolution circumstances, if there is not that third party, right, that mediator, um, when one when person A says something to person B, it always gets misconstrued, misunderstood, and it's always the darkest and most negative interpretation is accepted as the standard understanding of what that person said. <laughs> okay, you need someone who knows both of you very well, who loves both of you so much, and who knows you both well, to be able to understand both of you and speak the proper truth to each other so that the wrong interpretations don't get communicated, right? But that person must also have a fierce allegiance to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ so that when you're wrong in that situation, he lovingly, because he knows you so well, or she knows you so well, lovingly for your benefit, for your blessing, and for your encouragement, and for the reconciliation of both parties, they speak truth into your life. And that that takes a very special person who knows God, who knows and loves God fiercely, and who knows and loves you fiercely as well. practical application, right? 
That's how we live out the gospel of Christ in conflict. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. And we've looked at David and how he incredibly failed morally before your presence as a leader, as a king, and as a child of God. I pray, God, as we look at his life and we reflect on how even in the New Testament, it states how David was a man after God's own heart, even after those horrible crimes. Help us not to look to ourselves or to the common secular way of approaching conflict and a breaking of a covenantal relationship and trust. But Lord, help us to pursue a Christ-centered approach because that's exactly what you did in reconciling us to yourself. Christ was at the center of the healing. He was at the center of the reconciliation. And we have only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ himself. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he is the healer of our wounds. So Lord, bring healing into our lives. Help us not to defer to the temptation of works, righteousness, and salvation, but Lord, help us to pursue joy in a grace-defined and grace-driven approach to living out the gospel, even in the midst of conflict. We pray in Jesus' name. Please arise with me and let's sing our response song.